I want to say to people, don't you see that there is already an alien intelligence here present on the planet controlling us directly and indirectly? And it's called institutions. There's something happening where, you know, we say, well, we see an ad on TV that says Exxon believes that a green future is the best future. How does Exxon believe anything? What the fuck is Exxon? Exxon doesn't have a brain. Exxon doesn't have a moral structure. Exxon is a psychopath, like all corporations are psychopaths. They have no emotional presence whatsoever. A corporation doesn't have a mother. A corporation doesn't have blood. It doesn't live and die the way we do. But it is a living thing. And it's a very strange life form that I feel like people have trouble recognizing. And so they're kind of helpless against them. And you could say the same thing about religions or governments. I think that essentially what we're looking at is an emergent intelligence. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to episode 178 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week, I am very grateful and excited to share a conversation with you I've been eager to have for years with Chris Ryan, author of Civilized to Death, co-author of Sex at Dawn, host of Tangentially Speaking, anthropologist, podcaster, van life evangelist, deeply interesting dude. I've been listening to his show for years, and so I got to hear him talk about the process. You know, he's thinking out loud as he was writing Civilized to Death, and I felt like I was in a conversation with him. It's funny, I saw this meme today of what it's like to listen to podcasts, and it was this advertisement of a bunch of people eating ice cream, and then this guy standing next to the advertisement poster also eating ice cream pretending like he's hanging out with the people in the poster and that yeah that's kind of how it was although briefly uh chris ryan and i met at burning man in 2017 and had a, a short conversation that really set the stage for this one so yeah it's funny how this may be the single longest incubated episode of future fossils and so it is my deep delight to share it with you now. But first, I want to celebrate every single person who listens to this show, who subscribes, who reviews it on Apple Podcasts, tells their friends, who engages with the rest of the listening community on Facebook or on Discord. In as much as podcasts are a form of communion, I see them as an aperture to something else, not an end unto themselves. And I want to thank everyone who has honored all of the work that it takes to put this show together and to continue to nourish and cultivate the conversations and the communities that are starting to flower around it. If you hear a grunting in the background, that's my infant son sitting in my lap right now as I record this. So that's just the ambience of responsibility and care and interdependence that defines my life and yours. 
And if you like the show, if you believe as I do that it is maybe too weird to live, but too rare to die, then hop on over to Patreon and stake in and become a more active part of what this could be. I don't know what it looks like quite yet, but I really want future fossils to blossom into a a much more polycentric kind of thing in 2022. So again, a deep thanks to everybody who has been helping out, including James Robert Foster, Luke, and Kevin Kent, the three latest Patreon supporters. Thank you. And with that, I won't belabor this any longer, but stick around at the end of this conversation. I'm going to share a demo of a new song that for me encapsulates some of the themes in this conversation and many others leading up to it. I love that Chris signs off on his show with Carsey Blanton's song Smoke Alarm. So I'll ring you out with a song named after a book we discuss in this episode, James C. Scott's Seeing Like a State. Anyway, thank you and enjoy. Aha. Okay. Well, Chris, it's a pleasure. Thank you for for agreeing to do this. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm happy to do it, man. Yeah. So I wanted to talk with you today based on a seed that you planted in me in a discussion that we had when I I met you at Burning Man in 2017, and we were talking at, I guess you were camped with Duncan Trussell that year across from my camp with Soft Landing and Palenque Norte. And I planted a seed in you? That sounds really pornographic, man. (laughs) You planted a seed in me at Burning Man, at Booty Camp, no less. Yes, and then didn't water it. That's uh, (laughs) bad form. Yeah, no, but... This we had this conversation about the book that you're that you were at the time writing, and about how you wanted to tell it. And these are kind of my words for this. But one of the things that I that appealed to me about your particular version of this thesis was its emphasis on the agency of our institutions. This notion that your critique of civilization is not about man as an individual, but human beings as emergent, you know, that human behavior is is something that occurs within a particular landscape or context. And modern behavior is something that that occurs in the context of these unthinkably vast agencies that have their own sort of intent or destiny or however you want to put it. And I see this as, you know, when people are comparing the points that you're making to the points other people are making about the problems of civilization, that seems like the place to dig in. So that's the kind of stuff I want to dig in with you today. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, that's an underappreciated aspect of human behavior. This, the way that people surrender individual agency to groupthink and institutional power. And, you know, I, th- I think that many people are aware of that on some levels, you know, the sort of madness of crowds and mass hysteria and all that kind of stuff. But I think that a lot of it's underappreciated in the sense that institutions, particularly corporations, are the the example that strikes me most strongly today. We've given them not only 
agency. We've given them like religious freedom. You know, we've given them voting rights. We've given them control of our government. Uh, we've given them control of the regulatory agencies that are supposed to protect us from them. And I feel like there's some kind of parallel between the fascination with zombies and the walking dead and UFOs and all that kind of stuff. And it, I, I want to say to people, don't you see that there is already an alien intelligence here present on the planet controlling us directly and indirectly? And it's called institutions. There's something happening where, you know, we say, well, we see an ad on TV that says Exxon believes that a green future is the best future. How does Exxon believe anything? What the fuck is Exxon? Exxon doesn't have a brain. Exxon doesn't have a moral structure. Exxon is a psychopath, like all corporations are psychopaths. They're, they have no emotional presence whatsoever. You know, there's no, a corporation doesn't have a mother. A corporation doesn't have blood. It doesn't live and die the way we do, but it is a living thing. And it's a very strange, life form that I feel like people have trouble recognizing. And so they're kind of helpless against them. And you could say the same thing about religions or governments. I think that essentially what we're looking at is an emergent intelligence. And we see this all over the animal kingdom. It's not only animals or only humans. It's, you know, birds that flock and no particular goose is the goose leader saying, okay, guys, it's time to go south now. Follow me. It just happens. You know, wildebeests get together in a herd and migrate. It just happens. Uh, salmon come together and, and school, and that happens. There's no leadership. There's no particular external force that makes these things happen. And it's a very different, a solitary salmon in the open ocean is a very different thing from a salmon that's become part of a school. And I think the same happens with humans. One of my favorite examples is there's a species of grasshopper that I wrote about in Civilized to Death because it's just such a weird example. Anyway, there's, there's this grasshopper that lives in North Africa and they are relatively dispersed, solitary. They just, you know, munch on grass and, and hang around. And then occasionally when there's an extraordinary level of rainfall and lots of grass grows, the population of these grasshoppers gets much higher because there's more food, right? And then the rain stop and the grass, the grassy areas start to contract and get smaller and smaller. And so the population density of these grasshoppers grows higher and higher as they get packed in closer together. And at some point, their proximity to one another triggers previously dormant genes. And those genes trigger physiological changes in the grasshoppers visible physiological changes. And I'm not saying over generations. I'm saying in individual grasshoppers today, their front feet get shorter, their back legs get longer, the, the shape of their thorax changes, their coloration changes, and they become very aggressive. They go from being these very chill, relaxed, dispersed grasshoppers to very intense, aggressive, uh, cannibalistic 
urban grasshoppers, we could say, because they're packed in together. And then they start swarming. They're biting each other and they form these huge swarms and swarm all over North Africa. And these are the biblical swarms of locusts. It's the same species, same DNA. It's just different conditions, trigger dormant genes and create different behavior. So they swarm all over North Africa. They eat everything in sight, the plague of locusts until nothing's left and then most of them die and the ones who are left go back to being grasshoppers so this is the tie-in right to your revision of the story of agriculture the origins of agriculture and leaning on the mounting evidence that agriculture was actually not that great for people or for livestock <laughs> that you know you actually see a, a reduction in bone density people get shorter right. you know life looks like it got worse and stayed worse for a very long time and I mean, even for the elites and so there's a a line there between that point like why did this happen like how did we fall into this mess you know what are we collectively solving that we solve collectively as locusts that we failed to solve as foraging human beings, right? And there's a line between that and the writing on stuff like seeing like a state and mm. you know the, the notion that there are these inherent tensions between institutions and individuals that you know if you want to make an institution resilient, that means fungibility of its components. It's like the military. It's like, you know, you if you want the military structure to adapt to shocks, then you need to be able to replace that soldier with another soldier with the same competencies. Right. And so there's this inherent depersonalization that goes mm. on in this. And so I remember years ago when I had first started listening to your show, you had Daniel Vitalis on and he was suggesting that the gray alien, this is something that's come up on Future Fossils a lot, actually, that the gray alien is like the Chihuahua future of human beings, that there's this, this trope in UFO lore that the grays are actually the future humans, and that they've become completely sort of vestigial to their right. technologies. And in a way, the question that your book poses, which is sort of, you know, how do we, we can't roll this back. I think, you know, you're very sober in that assessment, right? We can't roll it back, but is there some way that we can adjust the built environment to make it more ergonomic or make it, mm. you know, to, to give us back something more like what we evolved to accommodate? And I wonder how that question sits in light of the fact that it looks like this institutional agency is taking us towards this future in which we're sort of embryonic or like that we're rolling back into a, a kind of like childlike, highly adaptable, but sort of depersonalized version of ourselves. And I don't know, that's a long question, but I'm you know, curious where your thoughts are on reconciling those things. Yeah, well, that's all very interesting. Um, and well put, you know, I think that we are approaching some sort of singularity I don't think it's necessarily the singularity in which we merge completely with technology. Um, it may be uh, that that's definitely one option. Uh, I think there are two. We're at a fork in the road. One one road goes toward that. It goes toward a sort of cyborgian existence in which, as you say, 
the the biological element becomes embryonic in a strange way, which is counterintuitive since it's moving forward but becomes but that's what we've done as a species. It's interesting. We're a species that over time has come to resemble more and more the immature, more immature version of itself, you know? And uh, so there's no reason to believe that process may not continue. But I think the other possibility is that this technological path that we're on collapses under its own weight. And so we are thrust back toward some sort of um, compensatory primitivism, right? Where we need to find new sources of food and we need to simplify our lives because the infrastructure around us is, um, you know, dissipating. Uh, we're already seeing that. I think we're seeing that in many ways in the, I think COVID has exposed the fragility of the global infrastructure in a way that nobody really expected. And so we're seeing all sorts of interesting things like empty shelves in the United States because they can't get the shit from China and it's there aren't enough people driving trucks and unloading ships because people are sick of working for nothing. And all this time off has given them a greater appreciation for the value of time and being with their families. And they realize they don't need as much money as they thought they needed because they've cut back and they can, you know, so there are all these interesting adjustments happening, shocks rippling through the global economy because people uh, are starting to see through it. And I think another reason they're seeing through it is that it's pretty clear that for the first time in American history, the generations growing up now are not going to live as well or better than their parents did. Every generation before took that for granted. And now suddenly people your age are saying, fuck, I got more debt. My parents had a house when they were my age and they could uh, support everything on one job. Now it would take me and my partner and it'll be 20 years till we're out of debt and can even start to accrue any kind of capital. It's a whole different ballgame now. And I think a lot of people are just saying, fuck this, I'm not playing. And um, that's awesome. And I think that people are finding ways to integrate some of this primordial value structure that, that you and I are talking about with life in the world as it is. So as you say, I I don't I don't think we're all going to just say fuck it and become hunter gatherers. The planet won't support that. Um the you know, the wild places are gone, the the animal populations are totally decimated. That's just not going to happen. But I do think that people can integrate these insights into life in a way where they say, "Okay, um how much money do we really need to be happy?" Uh, what if we just buy some cheap land out in the middle of nowhere with, uh, you know, well water that we can access and we can grow our own food and we can have some goats and some chickens and you, we can share it with various friends who all have their own skill sets. And between, you know, 15, 20, 30 of us, we've got everything we need. And I'm not necessarily talking about free love communes, right? Everybody could own their own land. It can be structured in lots of different ways. But there are ways to configure our interdependence in a way that is beneficial for us and that we're not, we're not uh, dependent upon institutions. I often think about this commercial state farm insurance, right? We've all heard their slogan a million times. Like a good neighbor, 
State Farm is there. How about if we just go back to having good neighbors, right? You help me build my house, I'll help you build your house. You know, we don't need to be Amish, but we can take some wisdom from people like the Amish and hunter-gatherers, and we can see how, oh, this shit works. It works because this is how we've existed for 300,000 years. And it feels fucking good because it's essentially human behavior. So I do think there are ways that we can integrate these things into our lives, and we're already doing it, right? Lots of doctors are talking about evolutionary medicine. Uh, we're looking at the primordial diet. Lots of doctors are doing research, trying to figure out what do hunter-gatherers eat? What did our ancestors eat? How did they exercise? How much, how much did they sleep at night? Lots of people are looking into the past to figure out what is the best way to live in the present and the future. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue. Yeah, that's in discussing this book with the Future Fossils Book Club over the weekend. One of the things that came up was that all of us in that conversation appreciated how careful you were with your prognosis and prescriptions, how you walk a, a tightrope here where it seems as though solutions are suggested simply by pointing out, you know, the environment to which humans are biologically adapted. But just knowing this from listening to your show and knowing how much you appreciate and honor human diversity, it seemed like you were very careful not to say, okay, now in the last chapter, here are all the things that we need to do to fix this. Like right. here, here is the way that humans ought to live. And yet there was like the strain that I caught or the implication that, that I saw in your book was that you get in sort of the last act through a section on death and dying and how the medical system in the West has optimized for lifespan. But is that really economically sane? Is that emotionally sane? Are people dying better? The doctors don't even want these end of life interventions that they're, they're proposing to other people for economic reasons. And then from there, you go into mental health and about how societies understand crazy differently and then than one another. And then mm. you go into psychedelics and it's like you're setting the stage, you're laying premises for this argument that the the way I read this was that, you know, when you say, for instance, the next generation cannot live by the assumption that they're going to be that they're going to live as well or better than the previous generation. But then you also say, but we're importing these pre-modern values into the, the postmodern world. And one of the things that occurs to me is that in the sort of collapse or decay of institutions, one of the things that's decaying is the consensus around what better even means mm. through an opening to this mystery. And that ultimately that's what you're prescribing people is like, you're not saying, listen, people, you need to do psychedelics <laughs> or, you know, you need to be able to like, courageously confront the mystery of death. But I mean, the fact is that if we're running off a cliff because of this, like treating everything as though there's this sort of global optimization function mm. that we're trying to solve, then suddenly, like if we give up that illusion, then suddenly we don't actually have some of the same problems that we have about trying to coordinate human activity to solve like the collective action problem of climate change or whatever, you know, because it's not a matter of simply, simply shifting economic incentives from one side of an equation to another. There's other things that people care about and there's a value placed on the unknown or the unknowability. And so I don't, I, you know, that's just something for you to riff on because that's something that I felt 
not spoken outright in the book, but you know, this my clear takeaway. Yeah, well, that's that's very perceptive. In both uh, my books, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, I tried, and in the first case with my co-author Casilda Jetta, I I tried to. I try to offer a way of thinking that can lead to one's own conclusions rather than conclusions themselves, right? So, you know, teach a guy to fish versus give him a fish. It's that kind of thing because I don't know what kind of fish you like, right? I don't know what kind of, are you on a beach or a river? You know, like you got to figure it out for yourself. But I do feel like in the case of Civilized to Death, what I was trying to show was that there are fundamental differences between the societies in which we evolved and the you know and therefore the source of our sort of natural predilections and appetites and things that make us feel good and make a life worth a living and the world that we're in now and the propaganda that we're inundated with telling us what should make us feel good and what should make life worth living you know, a Coke and a smile. It doesn't actually work. It's That's the bullshit that they're telling us. But you're right. I, I don't think that there is a prescription for the perfect way to live. I think people need to work that out for themselves based upon, you know, their own values and, and needs. It's kind of like the paleo diet, right? Everybody's talking about the paleo diet. There is no paleo diet. There are things that we can say about the diets of Paleolithic people, like they had a lot more fiber, they had much more diverse microbiome, they had much more variety of their food sources, they weren't eating a lot of grain, there wasn't a lot of grain, there was some wild grain, but there weren't fields of wheat, you know, depending on what part of the world, there could have been very high fat content or very low fat content, right? It could have been seasonal, depending on some parts of the world, it could have been not seasonal if they were in the tropics. So, there are lots of, there's lots of variation within these things, but there are consistencies. So I try to keep my focus on the consistencies, but as you say, also be very clear about the fact that there's a, there's a lot outside of the range of the consistencies that's very, that's variable on a personal level, on a, location-based level, on, on, you know, lifespan level, things change at different times in our lives and among different people. So, yeah, I think that's the tightrope you described, trying to say, like, this is how it was within these constraints, but outside of those constraints, there's lots of variation and freedom. So I think that's the best way forward. If we think about, okay, there are certain universalities, let's keep those in mind, but Within that, we can do whatever we want. It's like music, right? There are certain rules of music. But once you learn the rules, then the whole point is to riff on that and jam and do unexpected things, and then you have jazz. So I think I think that's what we need to do. We need to approach our social organization the way Miles Davis approached the trumpet. There's your sound Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'll take it. So I want to I want to loop here because there was a a bit of personal recollection or reflection in your piece on poverty and the gaps, the moral gaps that emerge in a highly stratified society. And I thought it was interesting that you know you talked about because this is my experience. I've somehow managed to like I you know find myself among very wealthy people, sort of 
appearing as wealthy and, and among very poor people appearing as poor and see how people treat one another when they see self in the other. And so I, I appreciated that you brought up the research on, you know, that it's, it's, it's not simply that being rich makes you uh, care less about others, but it's this, the perceived gap in, in status or, or wealth and, and how this affected you personally and how you, you developed, you use the Spanish word, aislar, this, this insulation or isolation against the homeless. And so this is like the human locust from hmm. the first person, right? right. You know, and, and so it's tricky, right? Because when we think about what it means to reestablish public goods and commons, like to, to open back up enclosed commons and to prize back that which we have sort of allowed to condense into the market space or the state space out of what Sam Bowles, who you quoted in this book, actually, Sam Bowles at the Santa Fe Institute calls the civil society, mutual aid networks, gift economies, and so on, the sort of vast majority of human economic activity that has been sort of siphoned out to institutional regulation. How do we claw that back when we now live in this complex society where we're literally stepping over each other. Like it's, it's, it's no longer so simple that we have what historian William Irwin Thompson called like the sanguinal polity, the blood relationships. You know, we no longer have just a geographic polity. We live in all of these overlapping blood ties, geographic overlays, affinity groups online. And so sometimes we're in a space like it, it's, it's, it's becoming harder to even know what your relationship is to someone else. Mm. what like what you have in common and we're you know we're relying more and more on these shorthands that are often misleading you know yeah. like um chu and evans at the university of chicago did this work on how large fields of science slow down they don't innovate as rapidly because what happens is people can't keep up with the research and so they start looking for credentials to determine which papers to read. And so a lot of the most innovative papers never actually make it into the surface because people are just looking for these little badges that say, Oh, this mm. is what I should be reading. Yeah. You know? So it's like that, that's, that seems like a problem that we can generalize to problems of eliciting primate innate generosity and, and, and collaboration. I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, you ask very <laughs> you compound questions, don't you? <laughs> yes, sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's think, I think it cuts both ways, right? I think that we're in this strange moment where we're becoming simultaneously more globalized and more localized uh, in a strange way. So, and maybe I'm projecting, but, but in my life, that's certainly happening. I, I'm, much more conscious of sort of getting my people together and generating our own tribal existence in some way in a specific geographic spot. And, you know, with a lot of forethought and how are we doing this and, you know, where are we going to get our water and who's going to take care of the chickens and who's going to fix the cars and who's, you know, who knows how to do carpentry. And, and we're, we're sort of like consciously assembling this community many of whom I've known for a long, long time. But it just feels like all of us are kind of, maybe it's an age thing, maybe it's a historical thing, but it feels like 
we're all kind of like looking at each other and saying, hey, when are we going to do this? Let's let's actually make this material now. You know, let's manifest this. We've been talking about it for a long time. And then I go and do a podcast that goes out to a global audience, right? Um, so it's like this weird kind of bifurcation. I go and buy a cow from the farmer down the road because I like the way he treats his animals and I know they're not full of drugs and they're grass fed and they're happy and, and, you know, but then I, friends fly in from all over the world for dinner. So it's a weird kind of world that we're living in, but I feel like that's the transition, right? Like we're kind of, it's like the old adage, think globally, act locally. I feel like we do need to have a global consciousness, but I feel like our response to the issues that we perceive with that global consciousness should be and needs to be quite local in many ways. So, you know, people are always saying, like like my partner, Anya Katz, has a podcast called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, right? And it's partly ironic, but I think that what she keeps coming back to is it's absurd to think that you or I are going to save the world, but we can save our world. We can save our friends. We can put something to a life. I call it a lifeboat. We can build our lifeboat or our ark. If you're a Christian, because the fucking floods coming, right? The ship's sinking. We, we can see it happening. So, and we can't save everyone, but we can save the people we love and we can demonstrate how it can be done so that other people can build their own lifeboats. I think, you know, when I was writing Civilized to Death, it was a difficult book to write emotionally because, you know, you read it, you know, there's a lot of darkness in that book because I had to make the argument that, hey, you've been told civilization is the pinnacle of human existence. It's the best thing that's ever been done by any species anywhere. Well, I want to question that. And if we're going to question that, we need to look at the costs of civilization, right? We all know about the benefits. We all know about classical music and, you know, photographs of the earth taken from outer space and Tang and Velcro. Like we all know all this amazing shit that's come from civilization. But what have been the costs? We don't talk about the costs, right? So let's really talk about the raping and pillaging and enslavement and destruction that is essential to the creation and perpetuation of civilization. So that's a fucking hard book to write, just to be in that space. But the bright light that was kind of unexpected was when I, I read a book called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. And that's a book about disaster sociology. So these are people who look at how humans behave in disasters. And of course, the Hobbesian view that, that we're all raised in is that without the state, we become monsters. We become crazed chimpanzees that will tear each other to shreds, that won't respect human life, human, the dignity of human life and all that. And so we need the state. We need this overbearing political force to keep us from tearing each other apart. But when you actually talk to people who study these things, they tell you the exact opposite story. They tell you that in disasters, human beings are unbelievably kind to each other. 
generous. They help people. And they're not helping people because we share DNA. It's not this whole, you know, inclusive fitness thing that the evolutionary biologist will tell you underlies all human generosity. It's nonsense. They're helping people they've never met before. And that's natural human behavior. And in fact, when you interview people who have been involved in disasters, uh, I remember one of the sociologists was quoted as saying, they will tell you that those were the best days of their lives. That the days when there were the buildings were collapsing because of the earthquake or whatever it was, or the war or the, the cyclone, when they were out there helping people, pulling bodies out of the rubble, getting together to save the child who was trapped in the building, when they were doing those things, they look back and say, that was the best time of my life. I, I had a purpose. I had a meaning. I was part of a group. I, we were doing good work. We were helping people. That's what makes us happy. And the reason it makes us happy is that that's how we evolved as a species, right? That's no more mysterious than saying, you know, dogs love to run. Well, of course they do. Look at wolves. Wolves spend all day running. So your, your chihuahua loves to run. You know, it's, it's that simple. Anyway, so that was a much needed sort of um, positive source of positive energy when I was researching that book. This feeling that like there is scientific data showing that if these institutions will just get the fuck out of the way, we are actually a very kind species. We much prefer to help each other than to hurt each other if we're allowed to. And as I often say, you know, people say, well, but humans have done terrible things and blah, blah, blah. And oh, of course, there's no doubt about that. But nobody has ever suffered from PTSD because they helped somebody. Yes, that's uh, something I was thinking a lot about last year, because my buddies who host the Weird Studies podcast did a special episode on William James's uh, on some mental effects of the earthquake where he was he was there for the the uh, San Francisco Great Earthquake and reported from Stanford on exactly what you're talking about. Solnit probably brings that up in the book. I, I, I've heard of that book. I haven't read it. But it accords with personal experience. I, I, I remember being kind of like shocked and horrified in high school. I was in the midst of suffering my my first heartbreak, you know, like the, the real the first one's like just to destroy you. Yeah. And what snapped me out of it, what snapped me out of actually having to like leave school every week because I was so messed up. I was vomiting in class. (laughs) Dude, I was wearing sunglasses at night. My my first, the same time (laughs) I I was 16, I was wearing sunglasses at night and people were like, what is up with you, man? It's like, I've been there. I know what you're saying. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, exactly. So no, 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 no. So, uh, so a train derailed, in Parkville, Missouri, where I was living. And then the, the river flooded. And then my car got totaled when my, mo- my mother was driving me to school all within like a month and a half of each other. And I remember just the, 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 inst- the like crystalline clarity of purpose and the gratitude that I had of just realizing that my little heartbreak was just this grain of this whole mm. ineffable thing. And it reminded me, I like that came back up for me in reading your book, because you were talking about, like, you start in the right place, which is, how come hunter gatherers don't want to move to London? Mm. Like this, you like all of these examples of, you know, people being like, uh oh, 
what if they discover McDonald's and then they don't <laughs> actually want like the things yeah. that we're taking for granted as, yeah. as you know, virtues of modernity. And it was like, well, why is that? Because foragers know their place in the cosmos. Mm. They feel a deep calm about a world they can basically understand and navigate. Right. And so, you know, like this whole question about the infantilization or whatever, this trend towards becoming more and more childlike to become more flexible, to become capable of adapting to changes that are happening within the human lifespan, you know, at that epigenetic locust timescale rather than inheritance timescale. Like that's insane, basically. And so of course there's future shock, right? Of course there's people who, who are like, you know, clinging for dear life to their fundamentalist religion or whatever. Mm. It was Zygmunt Bauman talks about modernity having a dual nature. One is control, but the other is to undermine itself. And if you think about like a mature ecosystem, you know, with all of these really optimized symbiotic plant pollinator relationships and so on, those mature ecosystems undermine themselves by generating enough novelty to disrupt the networks that, that, they, that have matured within them. Bob May wrote about this in 1972. And so like, you know, when I, I think you and I both see collapse in a way that matters to sort of broader public comprehension of this conversation, which is one, it's not total. And two, mm. sometimes it's a collapse of something that is holding you, that is oppressing you. Right. That is making it impossible. Like, you know, if the ultimate goal, if, you know, if trends continue and the ultimate goal is how are we going to make this work over the rainbow of some technological singularity? Well, then the answer is to relinquish everything that has made us human in the first place. It's to, you know, step over that threshold of unknowability and become something else completely. And I mean, I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say that I think that a lot of people will reject that and rightly so. And it just becomes a question of sort of like, you know, people who have thought about this a lot, uh, science fiction writers, Charles Strauss and, and Corey Doctorow, who wrote a book called Rapture of the Nerds, where Earth is preserved as like a wild game park for human beings by these things that we generate. Maybe we have to accept that we're not just like pets to the tools we've made, but like that's not just sort of like a rhetorical or imaginative exercise that like we have to just like, okay, you know, I for one accept the lobster overlords or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> well, Jordan Peterson would be happy with that, right? The lobster overlords. Yeah, I uh I think it's you said a few things there that that uh, rang a bell for me. One of them was your point that collapse is not necessarily problematic. History tells us that civilizational collapse is this horrible ordeal. But when Rome collapsed, most people's quality of life went up because most people in Rome were slaves. So the collapse of Rome meant the end of slavery for 85% of the people living in Rome, right? But they aren't the ones who write the history books. So we hear about the horrors of collapse from the perspective of the guy living in the palace up on the hill with all the slaves and the concubines and, you know, the cellars full of gold ingots or whatever. We don't hear about it from the perspective of the people who are like, oh, great, we're free to go back to where we came from and live the way we prefer to live. You mentioned seeing like a state earlier. I forget the name of the, the author of that book. Teaches at Yale. Do you remember? 
James Scott. So he wrote another book that I quoted quite extensively in Civilized to Death, and I can't remember what it's called at the moment, but it's awesome. And it's about how civilizations, relating to one of your earlier points there, civilizations aren't attractive to people. In fact, civilizations have historically needed to go into the hinterlands and capture people and forcibly drag them back to the civilization in order to get them to do the work. And we still see that happening now with capitalism going into places, appropriating land that native people are living on, starving them out, and then offering them a shitty job on the banana plantation. Uh, you know, people don't, don't want to do that work. They don't want to engage in that uh, economic system unless they're forced to. And I, I made a big point of that in Civilized to Death, all these mechanisms that stopped people from, even in England, from being able to just live off the land and hunt in the commons and, you know, build themselves a shack. No, no, you've got building codes, you've got property taxes, you've you got to pay this, you got to pay that. Like, you can't opt out. Opting out is not an option. So it's a, it's a strange system that advertises itself as the best thing ever, but behind the scenes is constantly engaged in coercing people to join this supposedly fantastic party that nobody wants to stay at or come to. <laughs> okay, so coercion, right? That's the thing. There's coercion into and then and then sort of how do you bust the coercion? On the one end, it's you know, climate change forcing people into agriculture. And maybe it's worth unpacking that a little bit more, actually, because that's such a profound script flip for a lot of people. And then the other part is in the modern era, you know, this has gotten so much worse <laughs> over the last several thousand years to the point that you have things like Warner Brothers defending a non-existent copyright to the song Happy Birthday for over a hundred years with their legal team because, you know, these institutions by their very nature are the, like the condensation of power. And so like, especially when you give them privileges of personhood, but there's no actual way to hold them accountable. Mm. Like, you know, there's that license plate. I'd, I'd, I'd consider a corporation a person when Texas executes one. It's like, well, <laughs> Texas is never going to do that. Even if they wanted to, how are they going to do that? Like, right. you know, there's like some ideas, like if the corporate charter is built on a smart contract or something, then you could have conditions under which it's automatically liquidated or something. But like, so anyway, this is, you know, those are the two doors. There's the door into the era of civilization and the door out of it. And the door out of it seems locked and the door into it uh, is on a different slope than we thought. And I'd love to hear you talk to both of those. Yeah. Well, the door, the door in, uh, in the, the sort of sequence of events that has given rise to agriculture and ultimately civilization, which, by the way, you know, we always hear about the cradle of civilization, the Tigris, Euphrates valleys and all that. Agriculture arose independently at least six or seven times around the world at different points in different places based upon different cultivated crops. So it arose in the Tigris and Euphrates around grains like rye and uh, sort of a primordial wheat. Um, it arose in China and the Angkor uh, area in, in what is now Cambodia around rice. 
It arose in the in the Andes, the Incas, uh, various crops there. It arose around Mexico, later the, the Mayans and the, the Aztecs. So these are all civilizations. And a lot of times people think, you know, oh, you're blaming everything on white people. No, I'm blaming it on civilization. Uh, and, and lots of non-white people were involved in civilization. So it's a system, not an identity. And the sequence of events that, that led to civilization that is common to all these different places where it happened, we now have enough scientific data to verify this, that what happened was the same thing, the same sequence of events that changes grasshoppers into locusts. You have a period of unusually generous climate conditions, so lots of rain over decades, if not centuries, which increases the amount of available food, and then a sudden change to the negative where there's a sudden restriction on rain, there's much less rain, the food starts to dry up, but you've got these large populations. So you've got in previous cases of of this sequence of events, a lot of people would have died, just like rabbits die when the rains stop or any other animal. You know, when when the source of food disappears, the population dies and, and reduces. So in these cases, somebody figured out a way to avoid that consequence. So obviously it it came across as a great fucking idea, right? When everybody's starving and somebody says, wait a minute, we could dig a trench from the river to those nut trees and I'll bet they wouldn't die and they do it and suddenly there are lots of nuts and like, wow, we could also dig a trench from the river to those fruit trees over there and bring some water to them and oh, now we can avoid what had always been the natural consequence of a change in the in the weather right in the climactic conditions so that's what happened in these different places around the world and that unbeknownst to the people involved of course created a ratchet effect because once you start controlling the source of food then you can increase the amount of food. Once you increase the amount of food, then your population goes up. So now you need more land in order to replicate the same pattern. So you become expansive, you become violent because you're expanding into territory that people don't want to leave. They don't want to give you that land. So you have to take it. So you develop arms, you develop standing armies. Now you've got a seasonal crop. So you need someone to decide, well, who's going to do the planting and who's going to do the harvesting and where are we going to store this stuff over the winter and who's going to decide who gets how much grain? In fact, Scott, who we mentioned earlier, makes the the argument that one of the reasons that grain became such a popular basis for civilization is that it's easy to count and that it all gets harvested at the same time. If people are living off potatoes, it's really hard to count the potatoes and they're pulling potatoes out of the ground all times of the year. So you can't send the tax man out to say, okay, what was the harvest of potatoes? Here's our 20% cut. You know, you can't do all that. But with grain, it's very easy. You can weigh it. You can put it in bags. You can transport it. It's very uh, amenable to the business of civilization. So that's how it started. It didn't start as some genius saying, oh, I think we'd live better if we had, you know, a steady source of monocrops. 
And as you mentioned earlier, the data are overwhelming that people's quality of life dropped precipitously. In terms of physical health, they, they got much shorter. Before, in the same part of the world, I think it's around Turkey, they found, uh, archaeologists have found uh, skeletons from just before the advent of agriculture. And the average man was about uh, six feet tall. The average woman was about five seven, I believe. And then in the same area, skeletons from just a few hundred years later, after the advent of agriculture, the average man was about five four, and the average woman was about five feet tall. Um, directly related to nutrition. There's something else called uh, Harris lines in the long bones of the body, the femur particularly, that form when someone is starving for a, in a famine, um, in starvation conditions for an extended period of time, the long bones stop growing. And then when the food comes back, they start growing again, and this leads, this leaves like a, uh, a line of increased bone density where the, the growth slowed down or stopped. So by looking at these skeletons, you can see if people lived through famine or not. And what you find is famine was far more frequent among agricultural people than it was among foragers, even in the same parts of the world. So that's just a, a little sampling of, of the sorts of data that we're talking about uh, that demonstrate the quality of life dropped. And it's only come, depending how you measure it, but it's only come up to something comparable within the last hundred years or so. And that's just for very privileged people like you and me, not for most people around the world who are, are living significantly um, more impoverished, difficult lives than the typical hunter-gatherer of 30,000 years ago. So that's the door in, which, as you said, is it's kind of strange. It's like, I don't know if it's a door or like a, a suction device. It just pulls people in who have no interest in joining civilization and again, for I, mean, I know that sounds very counterintuitive to people, but, you know, in colonial America, there was a law forbidding white people from running off to live with the Indians. Because so many, thousands of white people were just saying, fuck this, and they were going and living with the Indians. And the it's Indians... The, it's the Pandora effect, all the people that wanted to go live in the, the movie Avatar. Oh, Avatar is clearly a civilization versus, you know, the happy healthy, sexy, cool Indian people, you know, not to, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie, right? So it romanticizes, but that is the basis. That is what happened. There are hundreds of accounts of white people choosing to go and live with the Indians. I don't know of a single account of a Native American person willingly choosing to come and live with the white people. It's very lopsided. And, you know, I gave examples of that in Civilized to Death, including the, the, the people who were on the Beagle with Darwin, who abandoned civilization the first chance they got, even after, you know, being brought to England and educated and meeting the Queen and all this shit. They go back to uh, Patagonia and they're like, ah, I'm out of here. And, you know, Darwin was very confused by it. It's kind of funny to read his reactions to it. <laughs> Um, but anyway, that, that is the system. You get sucked into it and you can never leave. You can, you know, check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. It's hotel civilizational. 
Um, but uh, yeah, the, as far as getting out though, like you were asking about, you know, how do we, how does this play out? And you're right. One option is the the lobster overlords, but I think the other option, and this is how I I, I resolved it in civilized to death. I, I yeah, I'm sure you you're familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. Uh, thunder. I don't know if you can hear that. There's a lot of thunder here in Guatemala. But anyway, a little the scenery for yeah, a little aural scenery. Uh, but the the idea of his work is that every society around the world seems to have basically the same origin myth, which is that some young person set out on a journey and had experiences, near-death experiences, challenges, faced all kinds of confusion and strife and um and learned things, learned important lessons, and then returned back home with this knowledge. And this is how we, the people, came to be. Because of this journey, because Odysseus, or I don't know if you saw the, the angels, or the, the gods must be crazy, right? Where the guy takes the Coke bottle. and It's the same story over and over. You need to go on this journey, learn things, then return home with this knowledge. And with this knowledge, now we can begin to live the proper life. Now we have what we need to live correctly. And I I don't know, I, I wouldn't bet money that this is what's happening, but I desperately hope that what's happening is that this is our civilization. We have gone on this journey. We left home 10,000 years ago we have faced possible annihilation with our nuclear weapons. We've had wars that have killed millions of us innocent people. We've poisoned the atmosphere. We've depleted the fisheries. We've fucked everything up a lot. But we've also learned incredible things like birth control and the futility of war and that institutions will take advantage of us if we allow them to. And that human beings treat each other much better in person on a small scale than they do when we become abstractions to one another, right? We've learned all these things, how to generate energy from waves and sunlight and wind. Maybe we're at the point of our civilizational journey where we're starting to turn back toward home. And it feels that way because, as we pointed out earlier, medicine is looking at hunter-gatherers. We're looking at the benefits of natural childbirth versus surgical childbirth. We're looking at how hunter-gatherers live healthy lives just as long or longer than we do now. We're looking at how oh, consumerism actually isn't working. People are more depressed. They're, we're unhealthy. We're unhappy. Suicide rates are going up. Anxiety rates are going up. All these things are happening and people are starting to question the fundamental purpose of modern existence. And as you mentioned earlier, you can't really question the fundamentals 
of a game until the game itself is exposed as being ridiculous, right? And I think that's what's happened. In the last 20 or 30 years, I think people are looking around and saying, wait a minute, Catholicism is a bunch of child molesters. Wall Street, they're speculating with my pension money. It's not conservative and safe. It's a bunch of sharks. Politics seems to be completely corrupted. Medicine and, and big pharma is all about making as much money, not keeping me healthy. Like, name a fucking institution that hasn't been exposed as corrupt in the last 20 years. I can't think of any. It's incredible. And so... Yes, that's very jarring and traumatic and difficult for us because we feel like we, we don't have anywhere to hide. But on the other hand, it's an incredible opportunity because it gives us the opportunity to say, you know what? Fuck this. This whole game is rigged. This whole system is bullshit. And I think we see that happening in the United States in ways that are both very scary, but also potentially maybe ultimately positive. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it definitely feels like we live in an incredibly unique and powerful pivot point in human history. Agreed and Olay. That would be a fine place to end it. Do you think you have time for another quick question? Sure. So you brought up trauma and I'm glad you did because this is kind of where I wanted to land this. Um, the other podcast I host complexity for the Santa Fe Institute I spoke with one of their scholars, uh, Lawrence Gonzalez, who wrote the book Deep Survival on how people live or die in survival scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then he followed it up with this book called Surviving Survival, which was about how people get on with their lives after surviving a shark attack or, you know, a tour in Iraq cleaning up bodies or, you know, one of these unthinkably horrible scenarios, a lethal attack from their spouse, these kinds of things. How do you get on with your life? And he was able to identify three commonalities in the strategies that people use to not lose their minds or, or their lives simply by the virtue of being a survivor. One of which was service, service to people worse off than yourself. One was creative activity, writing or, or art. And another was travel. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of like the, the pilgrimage as an adaptation to this kind of, you know, needing answers, needing to, to find something. And it occurs to me that in your Joseph Campbell take on this, the hero's journey actually goes from the journey is actually one into and then back out of confinement. That's a big mm. feature, right? A mm. common feature. Often there's like imprisonment or some something going on here. And so we're imprisoned by this civilizational optimization function. When that comes off, suddenly all of the the features of the world that we knew through that trauma are are irrelevant that's like the whole point the trauma is like that's not happening to you anymore and yet you think it is mm. and so that's like the book of exodus where it's like i'm not going to build this pyramid anymore but i'm going to spend 40 years wandering the desert like basically living on faith trying to figure out what comes next and and to make sense of it so yeah i just in service to the years of attention you've paid to understanding and sort of reconciling the tensions between a sedentary lifestyle and a, a life of movement and travel. And there being like multiple kinds of people that are suited to each of those niches. I'm curious kind of how you see the post-civilizational balance of sedentary and nomadic 
and and like how you know what you might have to say if anything on trauma you know that's a fork in the road you can take either i guess and thanks <laughs> yeah well yeah the balance between sedentary and and nomadic is interesting to me personally because you know i spend half the year living in a van which is an interesting combination of sedentary and nomadic because i'm cruising around beautiful rocky mountains you know going up to canada utah and the desert just sort of following the weather whatever but i've got a refrigerator freezer you know two lithium-ion batteries got my my music got my you know fan and my uh my Instapot and my barbecue and, you know, I've got, it's all set up. So it's kind of both. It's I'm moving and changing, but I've got a home with me. I sleep in my own bed every night. So it's really comfortable. And, you know, like I was saying about the, the hero's journey there, I think the point of all this is the synthesis. It's to synthesize what we've learned on this journey and the desires that uh, we have from our primordial past to bring them together in a way that, that works for people, that maximizes pleasure and meaning in our lives. And I do think that there are so many ways to do this. And, and the beauty of our age is so many people are working on that. They're, they're looking at exactly that integration of the primitive and the hypermodern, you know, a physical manifestation could be something like earthships, you know, people who are like, oh, we can build these beautiful, comfortable houses out of garbage, essentially, you know, old tires and, and bottles that we get from the dump, and we can transform them into this spectacular piece of architecture that you can live in probably forever. They're earthquake proof. They're tornado proof. They're built into the ground. They heat themselves. They cool themselves. You can grow food. It captures the rainfall. I mean, this is an amazing thing that it took somebody modern, uh, who understood building principles, who understood primordial principles to merge them together into this incredible technology. And I think we're seeing that all over the place. You know, my van is a modest example of that, of the primitive, you know, it's simple, but it's so fucking comfortable. It's so awesome to be able to roll up to some riverside in the middle of nowhere and be like, I've got cold beers. I've got really good music. I've got hammocks. I've got everything I could possibly want. You know, my partner and I are just going to chill here for a week and we're going to be, we've got steaks in the freezer. We've got everything we could possibly need. You know, we didn't have to go out and hunt that stuff, right? So there is a way to combine what the modern world offers with what the primordial appetites demand and find that sweet spot, right? And that's always, in my experience, the sweet spot is always that transitional liminal space between appetite and satisfaction, right? If you go into satisfaction, well, you're satiated, then you're no longer hungry. That's great for a while. 
Um, but you don't want to stay there because then you're just obese and miserable. Um, you, you always want to sort of be moving between not enough and too much. You don't, you don't want to get too far in either direction. And I think the mistake is that people think that there's a destination and there isn't. The, the point is the movement in between. It reminds me of, and we can, we can end on this, but it was, um, there's a book called uh, Shambhala, I think, by Chogyam Trungpa. Read it a long, long time ago. He was a Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher um, who started the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. But I remember there was a point in that book where he says, you white people think that you know enlightenment is this place you get to after you meditate enough and you study enough and you get to this place where you're just always happy and you're always just, you know, in the state of ecstasy. And he said, that's not what it is. And it's a bad translation, right? What it is, is it's a state where no matter how happy you are, you never forget about the suffering that's happening all around you. And no matter how much pain you're in, you never forget the incredible beauty and generosity of the universe. That's enlightenment. It's that point of balance between these two energies. Um, and he said, and the last line was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the last line was, a state of enlightenment is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. We'll have plenty of opportunity for that in the years to come, I'm sure. <laughs> I fear we will. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Michael. It's been really fun. All right. I'll lead you out with this new song, Seeing Like a State. Check the show notes if you're interested, and thank you again for listening. I hope that you are comfortable and making the most of the way that things are not just breaking down, but breaking open. I dug my nails in your arm. No blood, but they left a mark. It came to no harm. But I still have the scars. You hit me first, but complained. And landed me in suspension Because illegible pains Really merit attention And now the lessons endure Although the song doesn't change You measure it or you ignore That indefensible claim and everyone in between Invisible and seen We optimize our machines By only what we perceive These metaphors Hide crucial Can not protect 
small and large They can't detect When you see it like a state See it like a state See it like a state